Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into The Scoop. I feel like I haven't done one of these episodes in a while. We had like a nice big sort of uh, stockpile of episodes. So I feel like, you know, I'm kind of diving back in. So excuse me if I'm I'm a little green or if I sort of get off topic as I am prone to do. We have a really special guest for this show. It's a different type of guest than we usually have on. We focus a lot on the trading infrastructure, on market structure, but not so much on the sort of, you know, quant investment side of the market. And so for today, we have Martin Green. He's the co-CIO and CEO at Cabrian Asset Management. He's got a wealth of experience in the investment world. Previously was the founder and managing partner at Hawkshead Capital LLC, a San Francisco-based investment firm. He was previously a financial analyst at Morgan Stanley way back when and was at one point an advisor to Pinterest. So he has an interesting background for someone in the digital asset space. And I guess to start things off, Martin, um, first off, thanks for coming on the show. We were talking before we turned on the mics about how this this is sort of your first foray into uh, into the podcasting scene. So we'll be we'll be relatively gentle, as gentle as we can be on this show. But I, I think you're going to have some great insights, and and we're really excited. So the first question would be kind of you know. What is the focus of Cambrian Asset Management and sort of describe your role there? Sure. Very glad to be here. I, I love your, your work and your podcast. Um, so Cambrian is a quantitative investment firm and we trade digital assets. The most liquid digital assets are the things that we trade. So Bitcoin, Ether, uh, and a portfolio of others. And uh, we trade directionally. So we're we're not running market neutral. We're looking to capture exceptional returns when assets are going up that are uncorrelated to equities. And we're seeking to avoid or generate return when there are drawdowns, whether in individual assets or, or in the, uh, you know, in the, in the market in general. I guess for our listeners who may not be familiar with what a crypto quant fund looks like, maybe they're more familiar with some of the funds that kind of run VC strategies, some of our investors, for instance, like Polychain, they're not one of our investors, Pantera is, always mix those two up. But how is what you guys are doing different in terms of uh, the strategies you're running? 
Yeah, so there are a variety of different quant firms. And so first, let me just tell you the kind of quant firm we're not. So we're not a, uh, we don't trade on very, very short durations like seconds or, or even milliseconds. We organize our, our strategy to essentially trade over the investment durations that are dominated by human traders, those discretionary funds or individuals that you just described. So the big difference between a systematic or a quant trading firm and a, a fundamental firm is that we don't, we use human sort of experience and judgment to build the models, the models to decide when to buy, what to buy, uh, at what price. But what we then do is let the models take over and we don't exercise human judgment along the way. And we think that that's uh, complementary to fundamental investing. Um, we like it a lot in this market, especially because it is a very volatile market and there are many, many opportunities for human beings to, to make mistakes. I think I've said this on the podcast before because I think it's funny and I think I'm funny, but I, it's also true. I think there's some truth to it, which is in this market, um, this, this nascent um, burgeoning asset class of, of digital assets, there's um, lies, damn lies, and crypto market data. Um, and <laughs> so, you know, obviously running a quant fund, you're relying heavily on data to sort of feed into your algorithms and, and basically guide them in, in making these different trading decisions. So I guess at a high level, you guys have been around since 2017, but but recently it was reported that you sort of ha have raised, um, you know, $4 million to run this $25 million quant fund. So I guess you're sort of just getting the wheels turning. But in terms of the data that's available in the market, what impediments are there to sort of running these algorithms that maybe don't exist in traditional finance? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of traders, quant traders uh, from commodity and equity markets look at the volatility in digital assets and think this is fertile ground. Um, it's a small market, but it's very volatile. And so there's a there's a really interesting opportunity. There's a quite a bit of a learning curve. And uh, as many of your listeners will know, you can't just take a model that works in the commodities world and just apply it to equities. You know, it took Renaissance technologies many, many years to essentially retune, rebuild, repurpose, understand the specific data for equities and how their models should work in order to be profitable in equities. It's an investment. And so the first place to start is the nature of the market data. And the first thing you, you realize is you have very limited time series. So unlike the equity markets that where you can and the commodity markets where you can go back many, many decades, if not over 100 years in certain markets, you don't have that time series in, in crypto. And yes, things happen more quickly in crypto, but limited data is a, is, a, is a really big issue. The other issue is the quality of your data. And so when we started collecting data and um, doing the research in 2017, we, we basically took a year to understand the different risks the, the different data sources, clean the data, and build the models before we started trading. So there was a, there was a fair amount of, of sort of startup time before we started trading. Yeah, so the, um, the specific data, market data that we started with, you know, in terms of price and volume data, that's, that's probably the most 
uh, reliable. Even that is, it's patchy when you get it from the exchanges. It's sometimes out of, out of sequence. There are holes. You can't just sort of call up uh, a Bloomberg feed, be assured that you're going to get good data, and then start running a model. Um, you have to start building the, the data store yourself. So we, that took us about a year along with other things. And um, we ended up with probably over 10,000, maybe tens of thousands of individual data points uh, on which to, to build the, the foundational elements of the model. But that's changed now where we, uh, we, we're building sort of the next generation of our data store. To what degree do you think the the market data in crypto has improved since you got started building out this infrastructure over a year ago? Have you seen any progress? Is it is it cleaner? Is it sort of um, you know less wonky? Um, there's still a lot of wonky data, um, and there are the exchanges themselves are sometimes it depends on the type of data that you're getting, but. The data that we collected when we first started in 2017 was uh, of a certain resolution, meaning it wasn't every tick, it wasn't the entire order book from the exchanges. We now are, have, a, have a data store that's, that's collecting over 10 million data points per hour, and that's every tick. It's every individual position in the order book. And sometimes the exchanges, especially during times where markets are moving quickly, they get their data out of sync. Uh, so you need to reassemble the data stream that you're getting from them to make sure that you have an accurate portrayal of what's going on in the market so that you can run your, either your simulations or, or run, your, uh, run your algorithms. But the advantage to you, you know, versus a human is just tremendous. I mean, there's a fairly lo long and, you know, intensive effort to get that right. But once you, you do have uh, good data, um, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> what makes it interesting? Well, um, if, you think about, if you think about the way human beings react to price changes in the equity markets, you know, a, a, to oversimplify a lot of times what they do is when price, prices move, they underreact and then they overreact. And so the, the response to price changes in other markets is nonlinear, but it's somewhat predictable. And markets go through little booms and busts and individual assets do that. And that's all in a world where the equity market annualized volatility is at least a third lower than crypto. So, so Bitcoin's annualized volatility, the variance of its price changes, is a multiple of that of most any of the equity stocks. And it's one of the least volatile of the, of the digital asset currencies. And it trades 24-7. So what you have is human beings making their reactions, often underreacting and then overreacting in a nonlinear way, um, to price changes that are a multiple as large as they are in other markets that they may be quote used to, and so the um, the opportunity there to be super rational, to have a model that's built from seeing the patterns of that behavior over many many years across many different assets. It has perfect information. It's completely rational. It can wait for hours and hours or days and days doing nothing, or it can react when the moment is right to 
you know, many, many times per second. That's just a, we love setting up a, a, a data sort of fueled uh, inference engine to trade very rationally in markets that are, that are often irrationally traded by the other participants. It's interesting. There was a report from PwC and Elwood that found about 58% of crypto hedge funds surveyed in this report were, were quantitative strategies. So um, th- there are quite a number of, of firms sort of deploying uh, quant strategies. And, and you know, this was sort of noted in a report by Coindesk about uh, whether or not quant trading works in crypto. And sort of the headline was, if you think it works in crypto, maybe, maybe think again. Um, we've talked about the sort of the headwinds to an extent that make, you know, sort of that makes sifting through this data difficult. But, you know, what would you say maybe to someone that would make the argument, this isn't maybe the best approach to squeezing alpha out of this market? Surely, you know, maybe I would contend that in this sort of inefficient state, um, there are a lot of like ways to squeeze alpha out of it. So I think I would say um, there are two elements to consider. One is what type of quant firm you're talking about. So we run our strategy over the duration investment horizons that are dominated by humans. So our current, and this will evolve over time, but our current model, the holding period could be as short as hours or days, but typically it will be many days or many, many weeks, sometimes uh, over a month in duration. And so that's very different than some other quant firms. Um, I think most of the quant firms in crypto that are operating over investment horizons that are maybe minutes, sometimes seconds, sometimes hours, but in that sort of duration. We're very grateful to those those firms. They can make money, and um, and what they do is they basically profit from, and their actions suppress the noise, the intraday volatility, which is good for us and good for the market overall. But that's that's a different strategy than what we do. We chose this strategy because the persistence of the source of alpha is probably quite long, and. We have a number of our investors who have lots of experience in quantitative trading, both on the very short-term side and the longer-term side. And um, that was a, the duration of your of the persistence of returns is lower the shorter the duration of your trades, if that makes any sense. Yeah, certainly. It's interesting. Earlier this year, we were kind of looking closely at, and we and we try to draw parallels between this market and and the traditional financial services market. And obviously, as coronavirus was gripping financial markets, uh, there were headlines about you know various quant funds misfiring and and experiencing unusual setbacks. Renaissance, Two Sigma, D. Shaw, basically in a market where you know things were happening that have never never happened before. You talked yes. earlier about, um, you know, the lack of historical data to sort of make predictions about, you know, yep. where the market's moving. Well, in a similar respect, there was no historical data, um, at least in the past hundred years of, of a pandemic that would shut down effectively um, the world economy. So I, I guess, uh, I guess the question is, you know, you know, sort of looking at at what happened, right? We, we saw them really, you know, 
the the sort of weeks um, during the the pandemic when risk just became so difficult to manage. And I wonder if you were sitting in your seat, maybe seeing these headlines and thinking, "Oh, give me a break!" You know, you want to talk about risk? Uh, <laughs> come, come watch. You know, everybody get blown up on Bitmex when it when it sort of that's falls. Right. Uh, you yeah. know, whatever fifty some odd percent. Yeah, that's right. I think that that so many quant firms are characterized as black boxes uh, by people from the outside, and 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 certainly some quant firms are black boxes, but the vast majority are not. The people managing the strategy have have figured out the types of risks that they want to expose capital to and the types of risks they don't. And I think one of the interesting things perhaps for your listeners to think about is there are lots of oversimplifications in investing um, in many other areas as well, but they, they serve a useful sort of purpose. And one of the oversimplifications around investing is are you in the type of investor who's running a convergent strategy or a divergent strategy? And you can run it a convergent strategy as a fundamental investor, a value investor, or as a quant investor. And you can do the, the same thing with a divergent strategy. One of the things that's different about these convergent and divergent strategies is a convergent strategy essentially is a very classic kind of contrarian, oh, the market is overbought and I'm going to short it. You know, it's what it's what the, the you know tiger management Julian Robertson did at the at the sort of tail end of the internet boom, and he was correct. But the market was irrational longer than he could sustain that short. Um, I think I think he closed Tiger six weeks before the collapse of the of the internet boom. He and many others would be considered a a convergent strategy, meaning they calculate intrinsic value when the market presents them a price that's way out of whack with what they believe the price is. They bet against the market and they profit if the market comes around to their view. Classic value investors are, are, of, this, are of this view. There are many discretionary and quant firms that run convergent strategy when, when pairs, for example, get out of whack. The expectation is that they will converge over time. You bet on that convergence, you profit if it happens. Long-term capital management was a classic. If they'd have been able to persist, they would have probably made the money that they thought they were going to make, but they were too levered and couldn't manage it. Similarly, in March of this year, you saw some quant firms and some dress discretionary people in the beginning stages of March, think that the market was oversold and they bought, and potentially they bought Bitcoin, for example, on the way down, and they blew up. We think the market is so volatile, so lacking in intrinsic value, sort of fundamental investment measures that are that have a, a mechanism for the market to converge on them in any realistic time frame that they can be out of whack with whatever that is, um, that fundamental value, and be very extreme. And so our, our strategy and many other funds as well would take an approach where if we put a trade on, the market goes against us, we take risk off very quickly. We're not betting against the market. And so I think that that's kind of a, one of those things that you have to kind of understand the types of risks you want to take and 
get rid of the ones that you think have really negative skew, um, where if you're wrong, you, you can get punished tremendously and just expose your capital to the types of risk where you might lose a little if you're wrong, you might make a lot if you're right, you keep doing those things over and over again. And, and um, you know, you can sleep, sleep well at night. So that's, I think risk is kind of one of those things that it's, it's super helpful to, to deconstruct the types of risks that you're taking with your capital. We saw a number of firms during this period blow up precisely because they weren't properly managing risk. I know of one fund that effectively, um, to sort of use more uh, commonplace parlance, put all of their eggs in one basket with, with several different accounts on BitMEX. And so when that kind of got shut out, they had no way to sort of manage their position or, or move out of it um, when, when things were going to hell. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if that's just like an, the nature of sort of, you know, folks maybe without this sort of Wall Street or traditional investing experience, just finding themselves, um, you know, in an unfortunate position or something sp- specific about the crypto market, right? Like in, in equities, um, maybe you can better position your risk because the the market venues on which you're maybe trading or, or sort of have accounts yeah. with aren't closing um, or, or shutting um, or just not available to trade on right, when, right. when they precisely need to be uh, up and running. Yeah, there are a lot of risks that are unique to digital assets. And, and I think the first, the first one is counterparty risk. Um, and, but there are a couple of, couple of others uh, to, to think about. And so there, there are a lot of firms and you've spent time researching and, and interviewing them uh, that are trying to build a digital asset prime brokerage firm with all of the, all of the attendant services and the capitalization to offer those types of things. But it, it doesn't yet exist in, in, um, in digital assets. And, and I think that's probably the one thing that prevents most institutional investors from from entering the space in 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 size is the um, the compliance risk or the counterparty risk. Those two are connected with one another. So what you end up with is a group of people who have taken. They think, well, I would like to take some investment risk, but all with that comes all these other risks. And I kind of I think sometimes you you, you know it's really really helpful to deconstruct all of the risks that you're taking, uh, research them piece out the things that you don't want to be exposed to that have negative skew. So, and there's a, there's a growing up that the industry needs to do. We've, we've had recently some crypto fund of funds kind of ask us, why are you so restrictive on your counterparties? You know, you're paying too much in commissions. You could get lower commissions and your returns could be even higher if you, you know, traded on blah, blah, blah. And our, our thought is there's no, few basis points of, of commission saving that is worth the possibility of catastrophic loss of principle. That's just not, that's well, not a risk that we want to take. Effectively, you're saying, right, just to sort of break it down, maybe for the listeners, there are places um, you could trade. There are places where you can maybe take advantage of a sort of arbitrage between two venues and maybe make a nice meaty spread on mm-hmm. that trade. But because of that counterparty risk, you're not going to maybe link up with these venues. And if you had a prime broker there sitting in the middle that kind of handled or yeah. sort of, um, you know, remedied, if you will, that counterparty risk, you would be more comfortable um, 
making some of those trades. Um, I'm kind of speaking at a very basic level, but I'd, I'd be curious to know, um, let's say it was, um, you know, exchange Y offering some sort of derivative product. What would be maybe some of the trades you're missing out on right now that are the result of an uncomfortability with, with linking up to those venues? Yeah, there are all sorts of, um, there are all sorts of, uh, smaller, less liquid, more limited history assets that are basically being traded by retail on different exchanges or on decentralized exchanges. It will, I don't want to say never, but there's a process that we need to go through before we're comfortable trading an asset, having a, a counterparty risk. And so, yeah, there's, um, I don't want to speak to specific assets, uh, but, you know, we, we, we're seeing a lot of, a lot of DeFi assets that eventually could become tremendous assets and and there there's there's a explosion of them um and and some of some of them we 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 just won't be we be involved in um and that's that's what makes a market there are other people that are interested in exposing their capital to that risk they'll make tremendous profits uh from the from those things and you know at, at some point we may we may be trading some of those assets when they have enough liquidity, enough history, uh, they're traded on counterparties that we can get comfortable with, et cetera. But uh, yeah, there are many that, that we, we're not there yet. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow the block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014 and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. I want to kind of go back to the um, data thread just because I thought about a story that was really interesting from some of my old colleagues at Business Insider. I don't know if you remember seeing these headlines, but Robinhood, which for I think a year or so put out this data that that effectively showed which stocks their users were piling into. And, and for the past few months here at The Block and, and many other media sites, Bloomberg, Business Insider, et cetera, et cetera, you know, kind of leverage this tool as a, as a sort of gauge for where retail interest uh, lies in terms of the respective stocks they're pouring into. And so Robinhood, I, I guess maybe they were like tired of seeing headlines about their users like diving into Hertz or diving into Tesla at insane prices and valuations and, and uh, with the backdrop of bankruptcy in some cases. But uh, the headline was Steve Cohen's Point72 and other hedge funds are sending urgent requests to find a replacement after the Robinhood data on hot stock trades suddenly went dark. And so they were reaching out to all these different fintechs, scrambling to find these alternative data sources. And it really points to just either, I don't know if it points to how important retail has become in this market or whether it points to just the importance of, of alternative data. I don't know. I, I, th I think this is like, I thought this was really fascinating. 
and I, it's something that I'm sure, you know, you guys are trying to identify too, right? Like where are the retail flows, where are the retail interests? And, and I'm sure that's feeding some of your, your algorithms. So I guess the question is what, what's the parallel there? The parallel to the Robinhood data, um, I, there yeah. are, yeah, I'm sure there, there's many, right? Because there are the many yeah. so retail focused. Well, the interesting thing, yes, it's it's retail focused. You also have a, a a very digital information availability with digital assets that is different than commodity or or equity markets. So there are lots of lots of places to get data that are that are digital, that are structured, that are available in real time or or you know sufficiently quick time to be able to to be to react to it. And the other thing that's a, a parallel is some of the equity positions that you mentioned, Tesla, you know, we, we saw that with Tesla and Apple after their splits. Those were not fundamental driven price increases. Those price in- increases were driven by momentum factors, the tendency of something to, for people to bandwagon on, on an asset that's recently gone up in price. And there's a body of academic literature on on momentum and mean reversion and how they interplay but the equity markets definitely display many of those qualities in ways that that are more extreme than they have in the past and digital assets of course don't have cash flow most of them don't have cash flow yields they don't have you can't do a discounted cash flow analysis on bitcoin and so the tendency for a balance in the market between value investors who are thinking about the discounted cash flow and momentum investors who are looking for the next, you know, it started to run, let's get in before it goes up even further. That tension is less apparent in digital assets even than in some of the Teslas and the Hertzes of the world because you just don't have the value investors on the other side. So these markets tend to be very momentum driven markets and probably will be for many, many, many years. That's an interesting point. I mean, is it fair to say effectively most movement in crypto is tied to momentum and liquidity? I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. If you were to break it down, maybe what would be the the breakdown or is it effectively? Because there, I mean, I think you mentioned this earlier, there really are um, not a lot of fundamentals. People try, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, wizardry or, or you know. Yeah, there are a lot, a lot of people who would love to find fundamental value measures for for Bitcoin. I mean, I would love, I would love for, for that to be the case. And and certainly, you know, anybody who comes to start looking at it will would 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 look at it as a over the long term, the you know dispersion, the how widely owned it, it, it is it. You know, those are some of you know. There's the Metcalf law type of measures of of how effective it is and how stable it is as a, as a network, how broadly applicable, sure. But that doesn't tell you whether or not the price is more likely to go down in the next month than up um, or the next day or what have you. So I think, yeah, mem- momentum is a, is a huge driver in, and especially in digital assets. And it's especially apparent because this trades, these markets trade 24 seven. And so Unlike in the equity markets where you kind of have the weekend off and you wake, you wake up on, on Monday if you're a trader and, and the game starts, you can wake up in crypto and the thing that you were tracking 
is going away from you to the tune of 10 or 20%. And that generates a whole series of emotional reactions of behavioral mistakes by investors. It's Sunday, you know, what do you do? Um, and so because it's 24 seven and because it's, it's very volatile, you know, momentum plays a, a huge factor. Look, you mentioned liquidity. Liquidity follows price changes in a nonlinear way. So um, you uh, people trade more when the price has, has, is moving more rapidly, either up or down. Um, and when it's really stable and, and volatility is very low, volumes can tend to dry up. And then, of course, you have different assets that have kind of gone into liquidity death spirals as the price just kind of doesn't do anything and, and goes away. And you have to be very careful about liquidity when you're an investor in crypto. It's not as simple as understanding, you know, average daily trading volume at all. And so that's a big factor. So, you know, kind of going back to like the March event, um, I, keep, I call it the March event now. That's sort of, yeah. you know, the 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 black, um, I think it's black Thursday. It was on Thursday when it was sort Thursday, of had that. Yeah. I remember I was out in the Poconos. I had just escaped from. Uh, listeners of the show will know I've kind of been, you know, all over the place these past few months. Um, you know, when I get to each place, I quarantine, but uh, it, it's sort of funny. They make fun of me here at the block because every time I'd go somewhere new, there'd be a corresponding spike in cases in that general region. And so I kind of was dubbed patient zero rather. Uh, but but in any respect, when we think about that event and when we think about, you know, similar situations where the markets are moving in unexpected ways, how do you guys sort of reposition the fund and, and how have your models held up in terms of delivering, um, you know, outsized returns when, when things are in, insanely unpredictable? Yeah. So March was a very interesting month and I, I'm unable to tell you our returns from, from March uh, for, you know, regulatory reasons that's frowned upon, but we're really happy with, with the month of, of March. It was a, when we were, we raised an, an equity round into the management company in June. And I think a lot of the investors that we had been just chatting with over the prior year or so looked at March. And that was, I think, very confirming for them that, um, you know, we do what we say we do, which is we strive to, to insulate against the big drawdowns. I mean, that's, it's, it's what we're, what we want to capture the upside volatility and we want to insulate capital against the, the big downside volatilities that are endemic to the space. So without without sharing too much in terms of, I can't say returns for, for March, our models actually had us taking risk off, meaning we, were, we had sold basically our position in late February. And so March for us that, that Thursday was completely uneventful. We had sold all of our, of our, our assets beforehand, the model had just said that the, the the probability of up versus down and the skew if if it goes up is worse than the than the potential loss. And so the, we um, I think sometime in late February, over the course of a couple of days, we we'd ended up the execution algorithm just took risk off and we were we were in cash. Um, I remember on that Thursday uh, having a conversation with Nick Carter and just it was one of those days that I don't think either of us will forget. Um, it wasn't, it's not the only time that's, uh, that huge, hugely volatile downside moves have happened in crypto. Um, and uh, it certainly won't be the last. <laughs> it definitely won't be. 
one trend back then that I think has maybe subsided or, um, you know, just isn't being focused on as much is this institutional wave of capital, right? Where we're really focused on retail and DeFi and the sort of flows that are driving into that corner of the market. But back in, you know, when did Paul Tudor Jones put out that letter? Maybe it was April May. Or, or early yeah. May. Yeah, May. Yeah. Um, it seemed like this was going to be a big moment for um, Bitcoin or at least the digital asset market more broadly. This idea that uh, it would perform as a, you know, the fastest horse in the race um, mm -hmm. as a as a gold equivalent or as a sort of better form of gold, a safe haven. And, you know, since then, you know, Bitcoin price has been steady. We haven't seen a ton of funds flow in. There was, um, you know, a filing by Renaissance that they might allocate to Bitcoin futures. But looking more broadly, you know, given your sort of background and position in the market, what do you think is holding back capital? Is it the institutions uh, uh, on which um, they would have to trade, maybe not being mature enough? Or, you know, I, I think you you made a really salient point around you know, they already have to figure out how they're sort of going to whether or not a position makes sense for them as an investor. They don't want to have to worry about whether or not that the tech is going to stand up on these venues. So is is that it or is it that in tandem with other things? Well, I, I think there are a couple of issues. We hear a few issues um, and they are I would say that the institutional interest is potentially moving more slowly than many you know in the crypto world would like it to but i i would say make no mistake it's it's we're we're undergoing a transition for sure we're in the in the maybe the early stages of it but we're in the transition from crypto being one of those things that institutions view as a third rail and if, if you have a risk committee and an investment committee it's never going to get through and so the only people who are allocating to crypto are principals, essentially, either retail or a single family office where the principal says, I'm, I'm not going to fire myself for making this decision. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's and that, and that did happen. You had some big family endowments, you know, multi-billion dollar endowments that, uh, that a few years ago decided to, uh, um, well, they're family offices, but they're run like an endowment. And they, they started to, to allocate. We heard from a university endowment that's been active in this space uh, recently that they they used to get, you know, a year ago or so, one inbound call from one of their peer group, so an endowment or, or a, one of the pension funds, every six months to, to sort of get that. We, we, I've been tasked with doing some research on crypto. We know you guys are more active in the space and you're actively allocated. Uh, or have have begun, um, you know. Let's compare notes. And they told us that they're getting more than one a week now, and that's happened since March. And it is largely driven by the search uh, for liquid, and in certain cases, illiquid. So VC and PE, but certainly the liquid part of the endowment the one that's responsible for the fixed income strategy and the equities, they are looking for alternatives that are uncorrelated to equities and that have the potential to add to their returns because they're worried that the forward, you know, as much money as people have made recently, the forward looking view is less 
optimistic. And so they're, they want to diversify and not just be in the equity markets. And so I think it's happening. I think it, anyone who says it's not is probably, they just have a time frame where they expect that all that stuff happens within a month or two. And it just doesn't, it's, that's not, that's not the way these institutions work. Their cycle for research and allocation uh, is, a, is a little longer, um, but it's, but I think it's happening. They're definitely trying to find alternatives, right? I mean, if you look at the market backdrop in fixed income, they're they're pouring into you know higher yielding assets, yeah, um, because these yields are just 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 exactly. tanking in many respects, right? And so you have yeah. many investors. Uh, there was this uh, Financial Times article that described them as ravenous uh, for higher yielding assets. Yeah pouring into, you know, basically <laughs> junk bonds. I mean, it's not a joke. That's what they're called, you know, triple yep. C debt. And and just the the hunt for yield, which we talk about in crypto so often, is actually happening right now in the fixed income and bond market. And so to your point, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe some of those same investors who are struggling to find a good return in, in fixed income might yep. maybe take a look at crypto. Yeah, I think they were actively researching it. Now, the thing that they then have to get through is the the infrastructure, their counterparties. So the, they these, these institutions have something called operational due diligence. There's a review process, which is in the IDD or the due diligence around the investment strategy. Uh, but then there's operational due diligence. And you you don't get to invest unless whoever you're investing with is, is passing the, uh, the ODD, the operational due diligence. And so the infrastructure that is on offer in crypto is somewhat nascent. And there, there are certain, you know, it's just, a, it's a, it's a process to get through and not all of the counterparties will make it. And, um, but that's, that's an impediment that they need to, that they'll need to, to satisfy with any manager they invest with, or if they directly invest in a, themselves and, and have to deal with custody or trading counterparties themselves, they'll need to go through that, uh, that ODD process. And it, it's arduous and it takes time, but it's, a, it's risk mitigation. They don't want to allocate to a risky investment strategy for high returns, but then lose their principal because the people you know, on the other side are not, are not you know, responsible fiduciaries. So that's one, one issue. The other issue is the volatility around price, the extreme volatility, you know, Bitcoin's annualized volatility is about 80%, which is probably triple what up until recently, anyway, um, yeah. it, the, uh, your growth equity stock is, you know, now, now Tesla's annualized volatility is I'm sure on a par with Bitcoin, but that's an exception. Um, so most, most of these investors are just, they're very concerned not so much about ca capturing, you know, they obviously want to capture the, the potential for a multiple on their capital, which, which you can have in crypto, but they want, they really want to avoid waking up or getting a statement and they're down 50%. That's just an, unex that's unex it's okay for some holders. It's unacceptable for a, um, an institutional in investor. I know, especially in a market where stocks don't go down, according to David Portnoy. <laughs> That's right. That's the reason why he got out of crypto. Um, but I, I guess at some point, maybe when when that volatility subsides and and the infrastructure is a bit more in place, maybe we'll see a uh, 
a changing of the guard. Um, I think Wences is right, though. I, I don't think the volatility is um, is is going to diminish in the near term. So I think it's going to be a challenge. It's one of the reasons why we set up our firm because we we strive to insulate against that downside volatility. But but I think it's the volatility is here to stay because the asset class is so small, and so fund flows in and out create this sort of like large person in a bathtub effect, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's here to stay, and the actions of the central banks probably are quite supportive of of digital assets over the medium and long term. But it will be really volatile along the way, and we will be we will be here in the middle of it and dealing with it. And, and in many respects, it's what makes it so fun. Yeah, Martin Green, Cambrian Asset Management. Thank you so much for stopping by, chatting with us. This was a really interesting conversation about, you know, the the way in which quant funds in this market operate, uh, the various risks with which they, you know, have to deal and, and the market data question, which is seemingly omnipresent. Um, We'll have to have you on again soon. Pleasure to be with you, Frank. Thank you. Yes. Thanks so much. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.